Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Tuesday, February 14th, and a highlight clip of actionable items was made available to premium subscribers the following day. Become a premium subscriber and take advantage of this and a host of other benefits. Visit the website mentioned at the top, contrarian.supercast.com, or visit our substack, contrarianpod.com. .substack.com. The benefits and prices are exactly the same at both websites. And these include getting the full podcast episode about a week before regular subscribers get it, and then without any of these annoying ads or announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast, which is out every market day morning by 7 a.m., All that comes with the price of admission as a premium subscriber. So check it out. Again, the website's contrarian.supercast.com and contrarianpod.substack.com. Check it out, and I'll see you there. Now on with today's podcast episode. Here you go. Callie Cox of eToro, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Thanks. I'm honored, honored to be here. Especially no, the honor as, is mine. As the guest contrarian. Yes. Well, we're going to talk about this now. You have this view, and the premise here is that the Federal Reserve, its mandate, obviously, is price stability, and this concept that they can kill inflation, or at least tame inflation, without killing economic growth. And this is a bit of a We've had different people come on the con- on the podcast and talk about it. There's quite a bit of debate over it, but it's hard to see how the Fed is going to achieve this without creating pain in the economy, without breaking things in the economy, causing stuff like unemployment and other things that come along with a recession. But your view is that the Fed can pull this off, even though, and I'll end with on this, their record of doing this is not good. In fact, it's terrible. So yeah, over to you. Tell me about this. Why can the Fed engineer a soft landing and how? Yeah, so I think we need to start with what you started with, Matt, which is what a soft landing is, because I think understanding this is kind of the key to our view and that the Fed can actually pull this off. So a soft landing in our minds and in most people's minds, like you said, is essentially getting inflation down without without causing a recession. And in my mind, <laughs> there's a lot of debate around what a recession looks like. If you go by the textbook, two quarters of decline 
uh, declining GDP, then we might have already hit one. So when I think about a recession, I think about a rise in unemployment because the job market and the economy are just so intricately linked. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense because consumer spending is about 70% of GDP. And many of us spend money when we have jobs and we have income. Um, and I think that's really where our view comes from here. The job market is so, so resilient. It's been resilient for the past year or so. It's still bringing in incredibly strong numbers. And there is a way that the Fed could theoretically get inflation down via wages by increasing the labor supply. Now, I don't want to get too technical because I'm not a policy wonk there. Um, so I can't really get into details around, you know, just where exactly supply is kind of like trailing off and, um, you know, how the Fed would get it back, because I think that that's very policy driven. But it seems to be a view that's working really well so far. We're seeing the labor supply take up. We're seeing the job market almost normalize a little bit. You know, wage growth still stay healthy, but come down uh, to more of a balanced level. And companies keep hiring as well. Um, we, we're almost seeing these like rolling recessions throughout the economy where we hear about one industry that's not doing well, like tech, for example. Uh, but then we hear about another industry that's doing great, think services-based industries. So I really think that there's more than meets the eye to this economy. And I think, I think there's an increasingly good chance that the Fed could use this kind of unbalanced economy with lots of sector stories to eventually get to the point where it can get inflation down. And, you know, honestly, I think we've seen a lot of data that's backed that up this year. And I feel like more and more economists are turning toward that conclusion. Huh. Just today, uh, inflation printed at 6.4% year over year, I believe it was the number, mm -hmm. a little hotter than anticipated. 6% inflation is five and change for core. How can you say inflation is coming down with those numbers? Yeah, so I think inflation is the big risk to this view, right? Uh, and inflation is coming down. It's still quite high, don't get me wrong, but it is coming down from the 9% print we had like six months ago. No question, yeah. The trouble there, and the reason why we're seeing disinflation is because goods prices are coming back in check. You know, supply chains are snapping back together. Demand is slowing. You can see that all throughout the economy, but it's slowing just enough to bring goods prices down. The trouble, though, is services, services prices, like the price you pay for a haircut, uh, the price you pay for rent, the price you pay for medical bills. The services inflation is the kind of inflation that the Fed can really control because it's more demand driven. It doesn't really rely on supply chains. And services inflation is still quite hot, which shows the Fed that there needs to be more work done on the job market. That inflation and the job market still aren't back in balance. If you had to point out a part of the economy that's a big risk to this view, you know, the thing that's really standing in the Fed's way, it's obviously inflation. It's moving in the right direction, but the components of inflation are still wildly off. And, you know, I think it's I think it's a really big risk. Um, I am encouraged by the fact that wage growth is cooling. You know, wage growth and services inflation are so linked because wages are the reason why we we can spend more money on you know, all these types of things we want for our lives. But you know, it's just taking a lot of time on that end. And while it's encouraging the Fed to maybe let up on policy and you know, see how policy works its way through the economy, it's also giving them a great argument to keep rates high. And a high rate environment isn't an easy one. Yeah, and how can they cut rates if you have this much inflation and this, and also the, uh, and you say the wage growth has come down, which is great, but the headline figures, if you look at the non-farms a couple of weeks ago, 
and other things. I mean, employment is is not too hot for the Fed. Where they, I mean, are people underestimating the amount of rate hikes maybe that the Fed still has to do? I think they might be. And if you look at the market, if you look at the growth fueled rally that we've had for most of this year, I definitely think the market is under <laughs> underestimating the pain here. Okay. Uh, because in a high rate environment, you and I both know that growth naturally doesn't work as well. Why? Because the value of a future dollar decreases and we're investing in these stocks because we believe in the future of them um, over what they can do now, which is a fine way to invest. It's a good strategy if you want to go that way, but it does not work in a high rate environment. But you know, I think the market is underestimating this. And that's why we're getting a little more concerned at these levels. The fact that tech is leading this rally higher, the fact that we're seeing more speculative stocks lead the rally higher. Um, it's really making us nervous around where the market could go because for a while there, we were optimistic. We were saying the lows are in, you know, if we don't hit a recession. And, you know, there could be a lot of surprise premium here where we think the where we think the environment is a lot worse than it actually is. Uh, but now with the S&P near 4,100, now with valuations a little stretched, we're questioning that a little bit. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. But ultimately, you do think that the Fed will be able to pull off the soft landing. We hope so. We hope so. And we're realists too. We know that there's a chance of a recession. We're not, you know, sure. stepping out here and saying hundred percent, the Fed's got this. I mean, we're still gritting our teeth behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that people really are discounting the position that we're in right now. And I, I do think part of the market's rally is the fact that we are realizing it. Uh-huh. And I'll throw another wrench in here too. I think the global economy is moving in that direction as well. Europe is less bad than feared. You know, China is reopening, yeah. and it's it's yet to be seen how that could affect the growth picture or the inflation picture. To be fair, but mm. it seems like the pieces are kind of snapping together. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had somebody actually just a couple of weeks ago come on the podcast and uh, talk all about the China reopening. Uh, shameless plug. If you want to <laughs> listen to that, but such an interesting story too. Yeah, back to you. You talk about some areas of the economy that you say are maybe worse than anticipated and where you have even been a little bit surprised. Can you talk about those, where they are? Yeah, yeah. So I think the obvious one is tech. Right. We've I mean, heard about tech layoffs. Uh, we see big tech, um, you know, struggling around kind of its identity with investors. And I wrote a whole long note on this. I think that this is actually a really fascinating dynamic where these big tech companies that we've, you know, realized that we've come to know for a over the past decade that we're that we spend a lot of our time on in our daily lives, these big tech companies are kind of at a crossroads right now where they're figuring out that the strategies that got them this big or that pushed them to the success may not be working anymore. So they're kind of pivoting into their second act and you know they're laying off at the same time and cost cutting. But if you're a tech company that's pivoting, you want to be spending money, but that's not what investors want. There's this tug and there's this tug of war between you know, short-term investor needs and then long-term visionary needs. Anyway, that's a rabbit hole that I can get into a little bit later. But I think tech is one of those industries where it's quite prominent. Um, You know, tech, a lot of tech companies are more growth sensitive. Um, You know, they have had to cut, they've just grown so much over the past decade. Um, They've had to quite cut back uh, quite noticeably over the past year or so. 
And there have been a lot of headlines around it too. So they're visibly having a lot of trouble. Um, Another industry, another rate sensitive industry is real estate. Mm. Um, Real estate went through a really rough year, you know, construction as well. Um, Real estate is an interesting one because I feel like it's almost been hit too hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially, you know, if you think the Fed can get inflation under control with prices at these levels, it may be time to start, you know, sniffing around there again. Uh, But tech and real estate are the ones that really stand out to me. Um, Industrials, interestingly enough, are another one, uh, but they've been hit a little bit harder because of global growth concerns and what's happening in Europe. And now we're finding out that things in Europe aren't as bad as we think. And, you know, again, with China's reopening, uh, we could see a little more and we are seeing a little more optimism around more global linked stocks. So industrials fall in that bucket as well. Interesting. Yeah. Is there any uh, hope, though, with with the real estate? The mortgage applications have been rising recently and the mortgage rates have come down. So would that maybe provide a glimmer of hope for you there? I think logistically, yes. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, mortgage rates are the big thing here. That's the rate sensitivity. So as mortgage rates come down, you could see a little bit more interest in the housing market. The problem with the housing market is that it's not just mortgage rates, not, it's not just interest, it's an inventory problem as well. But on the other side, and I've experienced this a lot because I'm a millennial, I live in Charlotte, (laughs) like you do, Uh Uh, one of the biggest booming cities in the US. The thing is like demographically, the housing market could be in a really good position because Uh you have the largest generation alive, the millennials coming into their household, household formation years and they're naturally looking for houses. So the housing market's a little bit of a weird one for me. Like okay. it's very rate sensitive right now, but long-term uh, it could have a lot of really good forces behind it. Okay. But you don't think that the the tech stuff or the real estate stuff or the industrials could spill over into the broader economy. There's Here too, there's been a lot of debate about this with how much of the economy is actually represented by the tech industry. And from most uh, accounts, it's not that big. Uh, but what, what are your views there? Yeah, so I think that there are still second order effects that we're trying to figure out there. And there are certainly ways that at least locally tech layoffs could spill, tech layoffs or any industry layoffs could spill into the broader economy because if you're laid off, you don't have income, you don't spend as much money, you're maybe a little more conservative in other areas. Uh, I will say though, it's been really interesting to see the uptick in layoffs versus jobless claims, especially initial jobless claims. And the fact that initial jobless claims are moving lower, even though we're seeing this uptick in layoffs, that tells me that you know whoever is getting laid off, they're getting back in the job market and they're finding a job really quickly, which you'd have to think that the economic impact of that would probably be pretty minimal. Oh, really? Um, I thought it was just because these people are, are very high paid tech bros who don't wanna be bothered with unemployment and have enough put aside where they don't I mean, you'll have to ask them. <laughs> yeah. That could be another theory. Yeah, for yeah, sure. I mean, that, okay. Okay. Yeah, but interesting. Okay. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go on. No, 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 no. It's okay. But like, regardless of what the story is behind it, which I think that there could be a lot of stories, it seems like these layoffs aren't translating into, you know, a big pullback in consumer spending. But I also think with the tech industry and with other industries, you have to think about suppliers, you have to think about connected industries and the pain you see there. It's just hard to say that there's been a lot of pain generally because you just don't see it pop up in the data. Right. You mentioned the consumer and the consumer has been one strong point and one could argue maybe the one that has 
kept the global economy from rolling over here, especially the U.S. consumer. Uh, do you think that the U.S. consumer can continue to spend, continue increase spending here as all these factors come in? Yeah, well, it, the consumer has been very resilient for the past year. It's even surprised me. I mean, honestly, I was talking to uh, my colleague, Ben Laidler, uh, back in the middle of last year, and we were like, well, excess savings are going to run out, and that's going to be it. And then there's the question around the perception of consumers and how confidence is so low, mm. but at the same time, spending is still quite you know decent. It seems like everything is working against the consumer, but yeah. the consumer keeps spending. And I think that's a reflection of just how strong the job market is. Yeah. And just how good of a position overall consumers are in. And I want to caveat that because it's not, I don't think it's the same across the board. I think if you look across income levels, there's definitely some localized pain there. Uh, but at the same time, I think as long as the job market stays strong, we could see strong consumer spending. And when I say a strong job market, I mean healthy wage growth, even though wage growth is coming down, um, healthy hiring, and then low jobless claims. All right. Very interesting. All right, Callie Cox of eToro, I want to take a short break and come back and ask you some more questions about yourself, your background, eToro, and we're also going to take on cryptos, which is my least favorite topic, but whatever. Um, that's not the point. So we'll do that in just one minute. Uh, if you are a premium subscriber, don't go anywhere. Don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And if you want to become a premium subscriber, you can sign up at the website contrarianpod.substack.com. And if you want to become a premium subscriber, you can sign up at the website contrarianpod.substack.com. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it, or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com, whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. 
it is really good and that is completely unbiased of course so check that out contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech now on with the show welcome back everybody here with callie cox of etoro callie this is the section of the podcast where we talk to our guests about their background personal and professional how they came to this station in their life it so happens that my background and yours overlapped briefly um but uh let's see yeah so t- talk about that what how, how you got here yeah well i'm glad you said that because i was definitely going to call out the fact that we worked together <laughs> okay fair um yeah so i started out at bloomberg i was a journalist at bloomberg doing the most non-journalist thing you can imagine. I was the options reporter and I wrote a daily options column for uh, the terminals institutional clients uh, about implied volatilities and opportunities there. Very, very nerdy. Um, I found out I loved it. I really loved Bloomberg, but I wanted to get a little more into research. So I took an analyst position at Tab Group. It's a market structure firm uh, that focuses on kind of how you trade things instead of what you trade. Uh, in terms of liquidity, in terms of spreads and pricing, um, in terms of strategies and how you get that, how you get certain strategies with certain products. Uh, and that was my foray into research. And I basically stayed in research in different uh, capacities since then. And since then I've moved more into the retail space as well. Uh, I really, really like you know, working with retail investors because you know, as somebody who's a millennial trying to figure out her own money situation and as somebody who grew up in a situation where we we didn't really talk about money, mm. um, I realized the gap that's there and the fact that you know a lot of stuff out there isn't really filling the gap these days. So, I mean, retail investor space, it's really exciting. It's growing a lot. Um, I feel like I have a lot to offer it. And that's eventually how I landed at eToro. And at eToro, I'm essentially a research analyst and a content strategist all in one. <laughs> Very cool. And eToro, is, is, is that a relatively new firm? or? It's actually a lot older than people think. So uh-huh. eToro started in 2007. It's a global uh-huh. company. Um, it's based in Tel Aviv. Uh, it's bigger over in Europe. Europe is our biggest market. Uh, but it's a social investing service. And eToro's mission is essentially to give you everything you want to invest in on one platform. Right. So whatever you want to choose, it's there. You can invest in it and you can talk with your f- friends and find community on the app as well. And, you know, basically learn by doing, learn by doing and learn by following and watching and talking with other people. Cool. Interesting. Now, how did you get into your your first job out of college was writing about options and implied vol. What did you do in college to get hired for that? So I went to journalism school. Uh, I did. Yeah. And it's, it does seem like a really weird leap, but honestly, I just wanted a job so badly. Yeah. (laughs) I, so I interned for Bloomberg uh, and on their tech desk and I ended up getting an offer to be a rotating reporter, which I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm very familiar with that. I remember that. Well, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So it's for everybody else. It's where you basically do uh, three or four internships and then they place you on a full-time desk. It doesn't always happen, but most of the time it does happen. So I was offered this rotating position. I was on corporate finance and I was like, this isn't dirty for me, which is weird. Um, when I was on corporate finance and then I went to the stocks desk and I interned there for a bit, but our options reporter actually left. And I really wanted a full-time job on the stocks desk. 
because that's like the desk to be on in a business newsroom. It's the most exciting desk. So I took it. I was like, look, I want a full-time job and I want it on the stocks desk. So give me options. I'll do it. And then I kind of fell in love with the numerical side of it and the fact that numbers really tell you the story. Um, I'm not a super creative person in that I can like look around me and see a story, or at least I wasn't back then. I think I've gotten better at that. But I really like the fact that I could just crunch some numbers and then find something to write about and mm. have other people tell me like, yeah, I saw that same yeah. jump in implied volatility, or I saw that same flow into a VIX product. And, you know, I think it's interesting too. So cool. that kind of, uh, that sparked my love of, you know, numbers and database reporting and that turned into research and that led me to where I am now. I guess the crypto thing, and that's actually interesting to that you're, well, why don't you tell us your views on crypto? Yeah, sure. So eToro in the US is known as a crypto heavy shop and it's true. So eToro globally has been around for quite a while, but the US side of eToro has been around since I believe 2018. And we're a full-scale broker-dealer. We offer stocks, options, and crypto. Um, But crypto is what we've offered for the longest, and that's kind of where we made our name in the U.S. Uh, I, even though I hate this phrase, I'm just going to say it. I am a cautious optimist on crypto. I think the concept is very interesting, the concept of decentralization. I think you can see it all around you and what we're witnessing in deglobalization, what we're witnessing on you know, social media, what we're witnessing on the web, basically turning power to the people from more centralized entities like government. Um, I think that's a really interesting concept. And at the heart of crypto, at the heart of decentralization, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. But crypto has two roads to it. There's the conceptual part of it, and then there's the financialization part of it. And I think it's really tough for people to gauge where crypto unlike the coins and financialization side should be right now. Um, and that's like talking about Bitcoin price targets and stuff. Right. Uh, so we don't put out price targets. And I think it's actually quite hard to say, you know, this is where we think Bitcoin should be trading because it's really hard to figure out what the fundamentals are besides supply. I mean, exactly. Demand. Yeah. But I'm really excited about the conceptual side of it. I'm optimistic about the financial side of it, but it's hard to say, where certain coins should be trading and what the value of certain coins are. Yeah, yeah. Conceptually, though, this whole idea of decentralization, isn't that just kind of a bit of a fool's errand? Like, I mean, don't you need centrals? And yeah, don't you need it? And also, can't you, couldn't you say that really that it's at best a myth and that ultimately you're not really getting decoupled or decentralized from every, anything, especially today when everything's so interconnected? Yeah, well, that's the big question. And I think this past year has taught us that a little bit of centralization and a little bit of decentralization work really well together, uh, which isn't what a lot of people want to hear because they want to pick one side or the other. But when I think back on this last year, I mean, obviously centralization seemed to thrive uh, in an era of high rates and in an era of uh, investors turning toward reliability, basically. They say, I want to trade. I want to do it now. I want to make sure my money is protected. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes that's better with a centralized party at the helm yeah. <laughs> that has uh, that has government backed insurance behind it and sure. all that traditional stuff that we seem to forget about. 
Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I look back on like the Ukraine crisis, for example, getting aid over to Ukraine happened much quicker through crypto and through decentralized apps. Really? Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot of data backing that up. And that's okay. a situation that sticks out in my mind where it's like, okay, decentralization really does make sense. I don't think you can go too far one way or the other, but I'm the I'm of the opinion that a little bit of decentralization could push forward the financial system. Mm-hmm. Um, if done in a safe yet innovative way and striking mm-hmm. that line is really, really hard. <laughs> yeah. But I think yeah. you're seeing it happen. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that was a good point there on on the on Ukrainian. I was not aware of that. Um, so there are actual use cases for when digital currencies uh, are a benefit, present a benefit to traditional currencies. Yeah, I think there are. I mean, one other one that I'll throw out too is the almost the tokenization of stocks. So stocks can trade twenty four seven all around the world. Um, I think we're moving toward that quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. And I oh, know. Gosh. An analyst. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are pros and cons to everything, yeah. but just the access that it opens up, the fact that, you know, you could be in Japan and want to trade Kohl's stock. Well, actually, Kohl's is an awful example. I don't know why you'd want to trade Kohl's. Actually cut that one out. Compliance will not like that. Okay. Um, let's say, let's say you live in Japan and you want to trade a stock, but you're way off hours with the US. I mean, with the tokenization of stocks, you could do that. I think we're getting closer to that. And I think I think it makes sense for US-based exchanges to look into it because US stocks are are the focus of everybody around the world. Right. But I feel like that's a use case within reach that a lot of people are discounting. I mean, the fact that decentralization can make things we're used to right now a little bit better, a little okay. bit more accessible. Wouldn't it be easier just to open up the I mean the trading is electronic now anyway? It's not like you have pits anymore. Wouldn't you just? Yeah. Wouldn't it be easier just to make the make the exchanges trade twenty four seven rather than creating a whole new token or security, basically? Yeah, it could be. It could be. But tokenization is almost one of the avenues it could take to get to that twenty four seven point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Um, any other areas that you think are ripe for disruption that you think are um, maybe people aren't talking about enough? Well, I think within crypto, it's really hard not to focus on the negatives in crypto. Mm -hmm. But I think if crypto is going to prove itself, it's going to be over the next few years in a high rate Mm -hmm. environment because high rates naturally wash out the weak capital. um, And it makes people focus on the utility of what they're investing in, the economic value. And that's been the main argument against crypto, the fact that there's no economic value in it, which is a fair argument. (laughs) It's not it's not too far off. Yeah, um, I think we're getting there, but it's not too far off. Uh, so I think the next few years for crypto is going to be really, really important to show mm-hmm. us what that economic value is. And I think the conditions are right for us to get there. I think a lot of protocols are building and we could see a lot of interesting things come up. Uh, but maybe that's just my hope speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think either way, it's going to show us where the industry is headed there. The VIX, right? Mm-hmm. So this is something that we see cited often. I personally, I'm not so sure that it, that it, does it still matter, the VIX? I mean, it seems to be completely arbitrary at this point. So what are your views on that an options background? Yeah, so the VIX is near and dear to my heart as an options okay. reporter. I wrote like every other story. Uh, as an options reporter, I wrote every other story on the VIX. Um, it's It's been one of those tried and true tools, but I think the market environment is changing a little. 
And it requires you to look outside the VIX at other you know, short-term indicators to figure out what exactly the market is expecting. So the big, the big argument around the VIX is that it hasn't spiked yet in this bear market. And, and there's a lot of debate on why that's happened and how that's so weird. Because in the past two or three bear markets, it's spiked up to 80 or so. And I think the high for this bear is 36. Uh-huh. Uh, and there are a lot of really interesting stories or theories on why that can be the case. But I think one that I'm really ascribing to these days is the fact that investors are looking more and more short term, especially with the fact that daily and weekly options are products that they can trade in now. Yeah. And the VIX just doesn't measure demand there. The VIX measures demand more toward the 30 day point of options expiration. That's just how it's built. So it's not broken. It's it's doing what it's supposed to do, but it's not measuring where all the demand is right now. Huh. So I think that's actually quite a big reason why the VIX hasn't been as reactive. And I also think, you know, investors have been quite hedged during this bear market. So there hasn't really been a rush into hedges. There hasn't been a lot of surprise. Okay. There's just been a lot of general anxiety. Um, but I think that a lot of it has to do with market structure and the fact that the VIX just doesn't quite reflect where the options industry is at these days. Interesting. So what's a better gauge of, I guess, risk, uh, if not the VIX? I think we're figuring that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a short-term VIX. It's called the, I think it's literally called the short-term VIX, but it's a measure of nine-day options prices. It's been around for several years now. Um, It's interesting because this year the VIX has been, or in 2022, the VIX was pretty contained, but the short-term VIX was all over the place. Okay. And you actually saw it build up right before economic data releases. Yeah. So CPI, Fed announcements, jobs reports, um, you saw it build up and then basically drop after the economic event, which right. shows that people were piling into hedges and then coming back out or piling into speculative trades and then coming back out, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a pretty fair a fair view of what what's been happening so mm-hmm. um i mean you can look at that a little bit more but i think generally it's best to kind of question how things are working these days because just so much has changed since we've been in you know a systemic bear market a bear market where we have seen one of those prolonged recessions 2020 was a recession in a bear market but it was a little one bit month. different it was one yeah. of those forced yeah one month switch the economy on and switch it or switch it off switch it back on mm-hmm type of recessions. But uh, yeah, I really think I, and I have been questioning a lot of the indicators that I'm watching too, just asking myself, is this appropriate for what, you know, I want it to show me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the VIX is at the top of the list, but the put call ratio is another one of those where sure. I think that there's a lot of trading going on in both puts and calls that isn't necessarily directional trading, but uh-huh. people see it as a directional indicator. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. What is? How do you track this short-term VIX? Um, I mean, it's, it's funny because even tracking the VIX is hard enough. But the how, how do you get it go? Is there a way to do it? So the easiest way to do it, I, I, I have a Bloomberg a Bloom terminal, yeah, so okay. I look other than Bloomberg terminal. terminal, yeah, such a snooty thing to say. But <laughs> uh, you can look on Cbo's website, the Chicago Board Options. Right. Research, okay. And they have daily figures. Yeah. Okay, that's true. That's true. Good point. Yeah. Right. All right. Very cool. Kelly Cox, in closing, maybe uh, tell our listeners how they can find out more about you. I know you're very active on Twitter and about mm-hmm. eToro uh, on these interweb things. Yeah, for sure. So as Nat said, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Callie A. Bost. I talk markets all the time. I'm a little snarky. 
but I love talking to my followers. I love discussing what's going on. So follow me, follow eToro US, uh, also very active on Twitter. Um, and I write a weekly note. It's called The Bottom Line. Uh, it's on eToro's blog, eToro.com backslash news and analysis. Um, yeah, I write about basically what retail investors should care about and how investing connects with our daily lives. You know, I have a segment of my daily podcast called The Bottom Line that I'm now going to have to rename. Oh, so, no. Well, as long as I don't have to rename it, then we're good. Yeah, well, you don't have to rename yours. No, but yours, you were first and yours is... I think we can coexist. I think we can coexist. Yeah, it's only a segment. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm figuring it out. I mean, if we're being honest here, companies own the bottom line way before we did. Well, yeah, but we're not being honest. So don't, let's not admit that. <laughs> you were first, Callie. Yeah. Cool. Awesome, Callie. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really great having you. Uh, look forward to having you back again soon. And thank you all for listening. Thank you all for being with us. And we will look forward to speaking to you again next week. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.